Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Entrepreneurship can be an incredibly lonely journey. From the startup stage to having no one to hold you accountable, we can sometimes forget the power in teamwork. Fabrice Guerriere is a Haitian American who discovered that collaboration really does make the world go round. As the founder of sci fi and fantasy production company Syllable, Fabrice aims to help writers across the globe to find their creative potential through collaboration. In today's episode, Fabrice shares how we tend to disappear to fit in, the power in prioritizing diverse voices and stories, and embracing your identity even when society asks you to cover it up. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Fabrice. Fabrice, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate it. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all the amazing work you're doing in the creative production space, I knew I had to have you come in the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. It is an honor to be here and to be part of your show and tell my story truly is. Awesome. I cannot wait to get into it. Cannot wait. So look, Fabrice, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Haiti and I moved to the U.S. when I was 13. And a lot of my past and my journey to the United States and 
uncovering a lot of why the world is the way it is and how it's designed definitely fueled my vision and my understanding. And it came to a point where I started to realize that storytelling and creativity is such an integral part of change making or transformation or evolving humanity. I feel like the final frontier of humanity in terms of our next stage is through our imagination. And so I started this company called Syllable Studios. And the basic context is we believe that writers don't have to write by themselves anymore because the classical way of writing has been there for a thousand years. You write by yourself, you're in a cave or in a coffee shop, and you're trying to write this great work of fiction. But what we do is we bring writers to create fictional universes together. And they use that world as a, a canvas for collaboration and populating that world with their stories. Oh my goodness, Fabrice. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just love your outlook and this business sounds so interesting. I want to backtrack a little bit to what you said before we dive deep into the business and the making of it. But, you know, you mentioned that you grew up in Haiti. That's so cool and so different. Can you, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like growing up there and I guess how that impacted your career path and your decision to go down and, and do what you did? Absolutely. I feel like being Haitian or growing up in Haiti, despite all the challenges that the country has gone through, I, I think is the cornerstone of my identity as a human being on the planet. Um, and I think that's something most recently I've started to embrace more because when you start to navigate a world that's built on top of a decaying colonial like uh, process, you start to realize it's like you have to own to the parts that the world tells you you have to reject. And I think for me, there's definitely a healing process that came to be there's definitely an, an integration of parts of myself that was fragmented being what I'm not really Haitian. Am I, am I really American living in the U S so I think all of those things for me, when it comes down to it, is is meaning. Um, I really honoring that meaning and, and knowing that meaning is magic and that that meaning I can create myself and I can create the world around me. And I think a lot of it, that's why my philosophy around the imagination, around storytelling is so fundamental, because I feel like the world we live in today is, has weaponized our differences. And I think truly a lot of what we see is the stories and it is the myths. And, and I think without being born in Haiti and having gone to the U.S. in that process of like seeing how people engage the world, cultures and perceiving, I would have never necessarily realized that. It's just so interesting. And I'm nodding along. You guys can't see me, <laughs> but I'm just furiously nodding because I just think that piece around identity and just embracing your whole self and who you truly are after everything you've been through and just kind of what society tells you to be like or what's good or what's not, you know, how can we get better at embracing our true selves and our whole selves when society is telling us that we should really forget or cover up some parts of ourselves or our identity? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like it's, it's such a powerful question. Thank you for asking that. I think that as human beings, like we learn through, what's already existed. Like we're born into a world and everything's already defined for us. 
and especially certain paths of like what it means to be successful, what it means to um, find happiness. Like a lot of these paths are sort of predetermined. And I think a lot of us, just the way the society is incentivized, the way the structures are incentivized, whether education system or the workforce or, or how we find meaning and how we connect with other people. And I feel like a lot of people let those markers they give those markers more power than themselves. And, and, and the truth is, it's like, you have to be weird. You have to be authentic and you have to like really embrace what makes you different. Um, I think there's only so, so much you can go in life in terms of the impact that you can make. If you follow a path that's been there, but I read a lot of biographies. I read a lot of, of, of ways that people have done things. And I think, there's definitely lessons that you can pick, but ultimately I feel like no human being is the same. And I think that authentic expression is something that you have to fight for. Um, you have to really, 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 really like a million times fight for without having that thing that lights them up. I feel like the system change is going to be even more difficult. Um, I think it's like, you have to be in your right movie. Um, but if you're not in the right movie, know that it's like, you're learning for a reason and you're uncovering, you're unpeeling, you're unlearning all these things. I don't know if that answered the questions, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm throwing you all the hard ones. But here comes another one. At what point for you, Fabrice, did you feel like you uncovered or peeled back the layers of yourself? And I guess at what age did that happen? And what was that experience like for you? Absolutely. I think stepping foot in the United States, I think that was like the first, like the first realization where it was, it was so, so visceral because being in Haiti, I felt like the U.S. was going to give me all my dreams. And it's like, I could be anyone that I ever wanted. Um, and upon realizing that my parents were working multiple jobs and that even can even make the bills, and then seeing like how that transformed them and also realizing like, I think a lot of it was like, I had this idea of what life was. And then when I was kind of thrown into that situation, it's almost as if like the veal just kind of came down. And, and through that process of reconstructing myself, um, I think that's when I started to realize like everything that the world is, is has been imagined by someone that it no longer exists and why can i as an individual play a role in co-creating civilization but i would say the inception of that was definitely moving to the u.s i think it just kind of like fragmented my consciousness where i was like okay i wanted to fit in i wanted to be american i wanted to be this specific mold of of american and in that process the more i try to fit in the more I sort of disappeared and disintegrated inside of myself. Um, and it just kind of came to the point where I'm like, okay, you can't reject parts of yourself. You can't reject your Haitianness. The more I try to fit in, the more it erased who I was authentically. And then the more I try to fit in, the more lost I also was. And I think like I figured out what I want to do for the rest of my life. I, I definitely know my theory of change of why I'm here on the planet um, and, and do this line of work around storytelling and the imagination. Definitely. So powerful for Brace. Wow. 
So I want to dive a bit deeper into life after that period. So, you know, your parents have made this decision to move you all to the quote unquote lucky country or, you know, the country, country of dreams or whatever they call it. And you think it's going to be so great and you think it's just going to, all your dreams are going to come true as soon as you get there. And of course, how would you know otherwise? Then you guys have that harsh reality shock and you start to question yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit about what, you know, post your teen years heading into your early 20s? You know, I saw you went to college at Florida State Uni. Um, I think you did a Bachelor of International Relations and Leadership Studies before doing your Master's after that at EMU. Can you talk to us a little bit about your college days and kind of how was your mindset at that time post, I guess, that really intense period of moving to the U.S. and your teens? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking that. It all goes back to the little Fabrice that was in Haiti and and this sense of wonder and awe that I captured um, around nature in the world and, and how I wanted to f- like fight for that. A lot of my manifestation started to realize itself in many ways. Um, I In college, I started an organization called the League Institute. It was a student-led think tank where the entire process was how do we bring people from different academic backgrounds to collaborate and to look at policy issues. Because I felt like a lot of the way things were done are so narrow. So how can we bring multiple perspectives together to like bring about new ideas? Um, and I think in the same setting as well, I got involved in student government. Um, I was definitely involved in different organizations throughout the campus. So I was the campus involvement person. Um, and... I think in terms of my mindset, there are two, three things that stands out. Um, I remember a specific time when I, a friend had told me about an essay by George Luis Borges called Blindness. And George Luis Borges is an Argentinian writer, and he's really well known around like magical realism and like the this sort of fantastical expression and around Latin American world. So I read this essay and I was like that transformed me internally because I had dabbled a little bit in writing here and there. I worked at a library in high school. That was my refuge when I came to the US. I was just like I volunteered at the library and I was surrounded by comics and stories. So that background was there with me. But after I read that essay, I was like, I want to be a writer and I want to be able to use words to shape meaning because of that personal experience that I had. I think another process was doing my international relations program. Like a lot of my mindset behind that was how can I change the planet around international relations? Because diplomacy um, and statecraft and international development. But I think the challenge in the program was that a lot of the theories were very like constructivist, realist theory. It didn't really explain why were the major countries slave economies? Why is Haiti the way it is today? Why did I experience a coup d'etat the first year I was born as a child? I think none of those questions were answered. Um, but there were two classes that stood out the most, and it was one, 
it was a peace building class by a professor, a mentor of mine, and she taught really conflict resolution processes. And that resonated with me deeply. I had another class on in like Latin American history that uh, the professor was a former diplomat at the State Department. And he made the case for the State Department as a pathway for change. Um, and I think those two culminated into me applying for the master's in um, conflict transformation at EMU. But I think a lot of my collegiate experience was very much just an expansion of myself. I just wanted to experience a lot of different things. But I do remember my junior year when Trayvon Martin was like shot and killed by uh, George Zimmerman. I think that was a pivotal moment for me. And that was in 2012, where I started to really think deeply about who I was, why I was doing the things that I was doing. I think that was definitely an awakening for me um, in 2012. And I, and in 2012, like I had like a spiritual awakening where I had believed the world was going to end. You remember everyone's talking about like, okay, the world's going to end, the Mayans. Oh. So, so it was like January 1st, I woke up. And I, I was like, if this is my last year on the planet, like, how am I going to live it? Um, and it was what it did to my like mindset. It was very radical in terms of my search for meaning, where I started reading more about history, philosophy, different religions and trying to understand my place in the world. That was the same year with Trayvon Martin as well. So it's like there, there was a sort of a synthesis between like an existential and racial lens. And also the dynamics of my writing came in very strongly. So I think my junior year was, I would say, the most transformative time for me at Florida State University. Oh, my goodness, Fabrice. Most of us just go to college and we <laughs> we try and get through it. But you are sitting in your dorm room having an awakening and like trying to figure out the meaning of life. I absolutely love it. I love that. At what point for you was it, you know, when you were working, I think you worked at the UN for a bit and then you were in, in Washington for a bit, you know, at what point for you did you discover the answer to that question for yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, using the metaphor of like the person going on a journey and having these different aha moments and trying to connect the dots and trying to be militant and fighting for those meanings and for the things that you cherish the most. And not let the world kind of play, pluck it apart and like steer you in the right, wrong direction. Um, but I do feel like there's so much different pathways that led me to that process. It's, it's really hard to sum up. But I think the, I think when I worked at the UN, I was doing my practicum for my master's, and I worked in the least developed country, landlocked developing country, and small island developing states, the largest acronym in the United Nations. But so the work that I was doing was advocating for small island states. And I remember specifically a time where I was sitting in the UN Security Council meeting, and they were specifically going to discuss the MINUSTA, which was the peacekeeping forces that the United Nations had brought in to stabilize the country after their Haiti earthquake in 2010. Um, and that was when I was in college that happened too. 
Um, and I was expected, a, I was expecting a lively debate of like, okay, this is what we should do. This is how we're going to iterate. This is how we're going to change. I sat down in the security council rooms and what I heard, I heard people talking in a very monotone language and they were reading from a piece of paper. Um, I think that was the moment where I, my like hope started to decay a little bit more in terms of these international institutions. Um, I, for, I have to preface, there is incredible talent and great minds working at the UN right now that are doing a lot of change and has made the world a better place since World War II. Um, but I, for me, in terms of my alignment, that marked me off the wrong way. And it was really in New York when I lived there, it was, I started going to a lot of meetups, technology meetups, startup meetups, and started to really embrace like technology as a force for change. And started to see that we are living in a society where we have so much information is less and less meaning, yet we're so connected and yet we're so disconnected. It's almost as if, like the metaphor I always use, it's like we're living in a Windows 95 like model <laughs> of society. It's just That's outdated. So it's like, <laughs> it's just really outdated. We have like 14, 15th century enlightenment ideals and, and we're living in a world where we have a cell phone and we can call someone from across the planet instantaneously. I think a lot of our systems are slow to adapt. Um, and I think that's what we've seen so much disruption happening, so much change in the economy, so much flow in terms of creating more access for people um, and, and the technologies that are being created. So I think that inception at the UN, again, just kind of being in that space of the this kind of global structure where it was like the epicenter of you have world like world water day or you have a conference on like women's rights you have another conference on manufacturing or small scale agriculture every day there's these large conferences you would go to i sort of felt disenfranchised a little bit so i think the spark of technology slowly rose in me i was like wow okay maybe there is other theories of change that might exist. But I think that was a main thing for me. Um, and to explain my time in DC, I was in DC before, I'm in LA now. Um, I worked at the State Department and to kind of encapsulate the process, I embraced my time there. And a lot of it was, I came in, I think a month before Donald Trump was inaugurated in office or two months before. <laughs> and Perfect three, timing. And then, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then I think three years later or four years later, COVID happened. Oh, so I think it, it was, but my time in DC radically ch shifted my consciousness and, one thing that happened I didn't mention is, so it, so I went back home to South Florida and in the year after, or that December, I had find an opportunity with PEN America, which is a literary and human rights organization. And I went back as an adult to Haiti and there was a lot of internal changes there too, because I realized I was no longer Haitian um, because my French or my Creole wasn't glophonized. My French is fine. But my Creole was anglophonized, and that's like the most common spoken language. And everyone kept asking me, 
you're not from here, or you? I'm like, I am from here, <laughs> but it's so it's like my entire life I had ignored my American identity. I've only seen it as like a okay, how am I going to give back to my parents? This is a door. This is access. This is an opportunity. But going back to Haiti was like the first time I was sort of forced to like to see my Americanness and and connect with it emotionally. It's almost like the smelting when you're like trying to remove like the gold from other minerals. It was like that process internally. Um, And then I wrote two books there, two novels. Casually. And (laughs) but that was the inception for syllable really um, when I went back to Haiti, because when I, came back to the US, I had kept working on one of the specific novel and it was just such a painful experience, editing, rewriting. Um, and you know, when I was in DC and I, those sort of ambitions around the internet, around um, creativity, writing and storytelling and my sort of background in social justice and conflict transformation, um, as well as my my ideas, like how the world could change, it just kind of manifested itself. Where I was like, let me let me see if I can figure out a way to help writers. And and the original idea was, how do we connect writers to editors? Um, because that's what I needed an editor. And I was like, I so I sent a survey monkey to about. 30 to 40 of my friends who are either writers and creatives. And out of that survey monkey, I realized the same pain points that I was feeling in terms of like loneliness or not being able to be accountable to another person, not understanding the publishing industry. Um, And they said, yes, they would use the service. But all these pain points led me to this hypothesis where collaboration, because since I had already done collaboration with the League Institute in college, I was like, collaboration seems like a, a powerful vehicle for to meet all of these pain points for the for writers. So I gathered three writers in my living room in DC, and one writer was uh, a Cuban American woman I met at Florida State. She was living in DC, and I reconnected with her at a Black Film DC festival. And I was like, "Hey, I'm doing this process. Do you want to like collaborate?" And she's like, "Yeah." This other person was an intern at the State Department and he'd gone to Georgetown and he's written a few plays and won some awards. And I was like, hey, do you want to collaborate? And then that was the second person. The third person was a friend who quit his six-figure job and a data scientist and bicycle across the country and back and wrote wow. during that time uh, his memoir. So I got these three characters in my living room and I was like, from the research that I found, here's five bullet points and you guys are going to write a short story together collaboratively. Um, and sitting in that living room and I saw a lot of magic. I saw three strangers that had never met each other uh, design a story and they wrote a story in two weeks. I saw I saw personal storytelling. I saw philosophy. I saw history. I saw even theater, one of the person was kind of like, okay, this is how I should position this person in the story. But it was extremely magical in terms of just like the collaborative process. And I was like, why is this not popular? 
why is this only in, in Hollywood with the writer's room or maybe some like sci-fi writers? And I repeated the process six more times in person and also online with different writers and then took three of the short stories from these collaborations and then published like a proof of concept online on Amazon as a book. And this was the early inception of Syllaboy initially, but I feel I've been talking for for, for 20 minutes, so I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so fascinating for Brees and I'm just taking it all in. And that was gonna be my you know next question, like the inception of the business, how did it happen? You know, so after that then, once you had kind of put that up on Amazon, that was, I think that was in 2018. So only about, well, about three, four years ago now. Talk to us a little bit about those early challenges of turning the idea and the concept into an actual business. You know, I think a lot of us creatives can get really caught up in the ideation process because we're used to that kind of stuff. But, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about turning your idea into kind of that viable business? And, you know, at what point in the journey do you feel like you got there and, and what was that journey like? Absolutely. I, I feel like finally Silvo has reached a point where I feel very wholeheartedly in terms of the engagement with the writers currently that the model has been proven. Um, but it took so much <laughs> so much in terms of of like we experimented so many different processes i think a lot of it is and i think i also get into the mindset of that is like you think big you see the finished product you want to get there there but it's like it's almost having the humility to start very small ship something out and don't worry about the critics and because it's like i feel a lot of people like create things put things out there and then if it they don't see any traction or anything, it's like they a stop. failure. Yeah. And they stop yeah. it. They're like, okay, I haven't felt business yeah. here again. <laughs> Didn't make but it. I, I, oh no. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and I think I I learned a lot of my perseverance through my parents. Uh, just like seeing them day in and day out supporting me, um, in ways that unseen and seen. But I think initially after that first initial book was created one we hosted in-person meetups um in dc so we gathered dc creatives to do like writing workshop with they would write a story um collaboratively like we experimented with this model called the micro novel we invented where it was like we bring in three writers and they create a, a story arc like a, a plot point from uh, like beginning, middle and end, like the start, climax and an ending. And they each write from a character's perspective at, in this three plot story structure. And they write three vignettes, uh, short vignettes. And then we put it together and then that's a micro novel. And they do it in a week, um, in just one week. Um, that, that model wasn't as viable <laughs> because it takes a lot of like handholding as well as, um, as well as, um, just the nature of publishing itself, like the qual the content quality and all those different things. But I think to answer your question, I think a lot of my journey in terms of the experimentation and trying to hone down on a model it's just, it's really having that sixth sense of like, 
I do feel like there was a pattern that just kind of at all of the processes that we've ever done, whether the in-person meetups or the digital meetups or the collaborations here and there, people love ideating. People love just imagining things together, the story. I think that was the most exciting part of people, uh, of like the writers that we would bring in and the creators that we would bring in. That was the most powerful part. And I think it came to the point where why not lean more towards the production aspect and less of the publishing aspect? Because a lot of my mindset was like, okay, we're going to disrupt the publishing industry. And because Random House, there is like a problem with race and diversity and stories do a lot of damage in our consciousness because it's like people that have those biases create these stories and these biases are imbued in these stories um, and I think it's a worthy endeavor, but it, I started to realize that was the, sort of the wrong way to look at it as ourselves as a publisher. Um, and we were more of a production house. Silva was more of a production house where, where we facilitated writers, science fiction and fantasy writers. So before we didn't focus on science fiction and fantasy, it, it was sort of all over the place. Um, and, but now we're world building lends itself more to uh, science fiction and fantasy. Like you can imagine some of the greatest worlds that you've you embraced, whether it's the Harry Potter world or the Game of Thrones or the Marvel Cinematic Universe with all the different characters and branches. I think a lot of my mindset right now is how can we provide a space for storytellers to come together and organize themselves around the world. Because I think big brands are choking the life out of small time creativity and the gatekeepers are still there. So I think in terms of the vision for Syllable is, is how can we create franchises and from a bottom up, something that's more creator owned, creator empowered, that prioritizes like black and brown perspectives and in such a way that can the next Pixar be created from someone's home? from their own desk? Um, can the next big world that people dip their toes into uh, be created and populated by a group of creators online creating IP? Um, and some of the cool projects we've been able to do, um, we partnered with the State Department and we got together writers from Australia, New Zealand, Puerto Rico, Alaska, and Hawaii to create a world that's called Earth 2060. And they're actively writing at this moment now, and they're writing stories from that world. And to imagine how, what does the future look like within the context of a science fiction world? And then we're connecting them with experts from the brain trust at Syllable. So we have a lot of storytellers or experts that come in and work with the writers to make sure the worlds are. We had this professor who was the head of agroforestry at Yale, uh, Dr. Fagnini, and she just unloaded all her research of what's happening in the field to the writers at the One Humanity Collective. Um, and the writers took that knowledge and then imbued that in their stories that they wrote. Because I think as a world builder, where I've built like thousands of fictional worlds, I've started to look at this physical world right now. And I'm like, the possibilities are so endless in, in the 
things that we can create in terms of our technology or societies or, or social justice. I think my mind works around that, that lens. Yeah. So cool that you create worlds like, oh my goodness. And you're writers and you're in your business. I mean, this is what you do every day. You know, it's, it's so cool that you've been able to integrate something that you're so passionate about with your everyday and your business and your work is very cool. Oh, Fabrice, I could continue to listen and ask you questions, but I am mindful of your time. So I've got a couple of final questions for you. The first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date in this entrepreneurial journey? That's a tough question. (laughs) The greatest failure... I think I've had a thousand greatest failures yeah. yeah, in this journey. And I think my win is getting right back up and learning from it. I think it was Nelson Mandela. I think he says it's like, oh, I never fail. I either learn or I win. And I think that is literally, it's, I, I have the same mindset. Um, I think I've had a lot of failures, whether it's, um, collaborations gone wrong or co-founders that are that left the organization or um, finding the right business models and I think this journey is still ongoing and I, and I think that's why I moved to Los Angeles about three months ago from DC um, because I think a lot of a lot of what's happening in Hollywood a lot of what's happening in the creative industry here has a lot more opportunities to connect and tie in what some of the writers at Syllabo are doing to the multimedia aspect of whether it's the games, whether it's films, whether it's comics or animation. Um, I think, yeah, I think I've failed a thousand times. (laughs) I think if... As have I, I, don't worry. (laughs) As have I. Like, anyone listening today should not like, like, oh, Fabrice, this and that. Like, I think I'm, I'm defined by my failures and... And I think I've, I wear them on my shoulders because they've taught me so much about who I am, why I do the things that I do and, and know that I'm not doing this alone. And I think there's a lot of people that are searching for answers for a better world. I love it. Look, Fabrice, over the last four years in business, you've gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work, although you won't really like me saying this, but you were featured recently on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Before I ask you the final question, which is how we finish every episode on the Peers to Peers podcast, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Fabrice, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing for showing us, you know, and particularly us young, ambitious ones out there that if we have that imaginative world or that that vision that we see in our kind of imagination, we actually can turn that into our reality, you know, and I think that's so powerful. That's what you've been able to do. And I think a lot of us entrepreneurs out there, all those who are starting out, often doubt our ability to do that. And so for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) That means a lot. I appreciate that. Of course. Michelle, thank you. (laughs) So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Wow. I I have a podcast as well I run. 
And I recently had a guest. Uh, it was Seth Godin, and and I wow. one of the first questions I always ask is, what is like what is your passion, and how did you discover your passion? And and how he responded to that question, he was like, he says there's a myth of trying to find your passion. And some, and I believe, and I believe in that myth and I'm not going to lie, but what he said, he was like, it's, he felt it's better to choose to do something that you want to do and you don't have to know what your passion is now. Um, and, and to, to answer your question, I think not pursuing what you want to do, what are those deeper impulses of what drives you as a human on this planet? I think we're all here for a specific reason, a specific purpose. And I, I think finding that or choosing that path and really being like militant and fighting for yourself, being really weird and embracing who you are. And, and I think those things are so quintessential to changing the planet. It's like, without finding that passion without living that truth and going after it i don't think change is possible oh fabrice fabrice <laughs> so well said fabrice ladies and gentlemen oh my goodness we've had an absolute blast thank you so much for sharing your story with us today before we wrap up where can we learn more about you and syllable Absolutely. Um, I am on Twitter. So at G-U-E-R-R-I-E-R, Fabrice, F-A-B-R-I-C-E. It's also, you can go on my personal website, FabriceGarrier.com. And syllable is S-Y-L-L-B-L-E.com, syllable. Um, and you'll be able to see the work that we do. If you want to partner, collaborate, send me an email. It's Fabrice at syllable.com. I'm always open. I'm always there um, uh, when I'm not busy trying to do all this stuff. But I <laughs> appreciate you, Michelle. Oh. <laughs> no, I, seriously, I appreciate everything that you do as well. I, I want to take the time to appreciate you because I think I, as a fellow podcaster, I know the amount of time and intention that it takes and the power you you brought all of those answers out of me um oh. and like you brought all those stories out of me oh. and you captured it in this space so I, I appreciate you for the work that you do as well and, and it's been such a pleasure and a delight to to connect and speak with you for brace oh i feel so <laughs> the same and thank you so much for the kind words it's been such an awesome chat honestly yes and for everyone else listening we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com 
thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst 